Sometimes it can feel like you've already watched every show out there. Enter Acorn TV. Acorn TV streams the most binge-worthy of British programming, from cozy mysteries and police procedurals to delightful period dramas and so much more. Do you love a clever, cheeky whodunit? Then check out Midsummer Murders. The new season is out now. Two murders in the same wood within three weeks. This is the country. And in the country, anything goes. Acorn TV is just $5.99 a month. And proof listeners can try Acorn TV for free for 30 days. Go to acorn.tv and use promo code PROOF. That's A-C-O-R-N dot TV, code P-R-O-O-F. Hey guys, Bridget here. Before we start this week's episode of Proof, I've got a favor to ask. We've posted a link to a survey in the show description, and we want to know what you think. It only takes a few minutes, and it really helps us to make the show better. Now, on to Proof. Heads up, Proof listeners. The episode you're about to hear is full of baloney. My baloney has a first name. It's O-S-C-A-R. Ah, good old baloney. As a kid, I adored the stuff. A baloney sandwich went with me to school almost every day. I even loved chopped bologna as a crunchy taco filling. Then I grew up. And you know what? I still love bologna. Okay, so I'll usually bypass the pre-sliced stuff and order straight from the deli counter. Or I like to grab a pound of German bologna from the nearby sausage house. I mean, bologna is a type of sausage. But amongst adult conversation, I have noticed that there's some real anti-bologna bias out there. So I emailed my fellow TV castmates, and I asked them to tell me about their own views on bologna. Less than half got back to me. And those who did respond? Well, I did find one fellow devotee of bologna. Another person told me how they grew up in a house where bologna was pretty much considered contraband. But in most cases, people talked about bologna as something that they had left in their childhood. These days... Only Mortadella, bologna's refined relative, would make the cut. Now, I like Mortadella too, but why does it get all the love? And why does bologna get such a bad rap? Is it just a matter of poor marketing? Or maybe it's a class issue? People have told me that bologna is so unhealthy, but they have no problems eating a hot dog, which is pretty much just a small link of bologna. Today, we're getting to the bottom of things. It's time for a bologna redemption story. From America's Test Kitchen, I'm Bridget Lancaster, and this is Proof. Hi there. I've got great news. You never have to make the decision between sending flowers or delicious chocolates as a gift ever again. With Edible, you can send it all. Every order is sent direct from your local store. 
Edible has everything. Fresh fruit arrangements, handcrafted baked goods, and boxes of decadent chocolates. There's something for every occasion and budget. And it gets better. You can get same-day delivery or free next-day delivery. Visit edible.com or your local Edible store and get $10 off your order when you use the code PROOF at checkout. That's E-D-I-B-L-E dot com, offer code PROOF. To understand more about baloney, we wanted to first learn about its history. So we sent reporter Rebecca Rossman on a mission to find out more. Hey, Rebecca. Hi, Bridget. One thing that I find pretty interesting is that baloney is used as kind of a synonym for nonsense or malarkey or, shall I say, BS. You know, like, hey, you're full of baloney. Do you have any idea how that association started? Well, I can't give you the full origin story, but I do know that the whole phony baloney phrase started popping up around the 1920s. At one point, it was used as slang to describe an inexperienced boxer, like Hmm. he's not the real deal or something. And the term really took off in the 1930s after the governor of New York, a guy named Alfred E. Smith, used it to criticize then-President Franklin D. Roosevelt's administration. Smith was attacking some claims the administration made about its achievements, and the exact quote was, allegedly, no matter how thin you slice it, it's still baloney. (laughs) That's so good. Well, what are your own thoughts about this, in my opinion, maligned, uh, seen as phony deli meat? My main memories of bologna have to do with childhood. I'm from the Midwest. I I don't think I was allowed to eat the prepackaged supermarket version because we kept kosher in my house. But I definitely remember having some best brand kosher bologna in my lunches. I wasn't much of a fan. It had this rubbery texture. It didn't have any clout in the school cafeteria. I remember even feeling embarrassed seeing it in my brown bag lunch, whereas some of my fancier friends, quote unquote, brought thermoses with Annie's organic mac and cheese or homemade pizza bagels. Pizza bagels had a lot of currency. Whereas the bologna sandwich in my lunch was just the easiest thing my dad could put together for me. My dad, being the sort of cook who one time when he tried to make us craft mac and cheese, put the cheese powder straight into the pot of boiling water. But even beyond all that, I always just associated bologna as this sort of scary mystery meat. Well, a couple of things here. For one thing, I went to school predating Annie's organic mac and cheese and predating pizza bagels. Oreos were my currency of the day, but I definitely brought bologna sandwiches. Um, They were so easy to make. Often I made my own lunch for the next day. And, you know, it's just so easy to slap it between two slices of bread, a little mustard, and you're, you're set. I'll give you that on the simplicity. (laughs) (laughs) That was the best my sixth-grade-year-old brain could do at that point. (laughs) Well, in any case, before bologna became this polarizing meat in the United States, its ancestor, so to speak, originated in Bologna, Italy. You were there for a little bit, right, Rebecca? Why don't you tell us a little bit more about your trip? I'd love to. Let's go. The first thing you should know about Bologna is, aside from being just an all-around beautiful city filled with porticos and gorgeous piazzas, is that it's also considered sort of the food capital of Italy. By the way, when I say Bologna, I mean the city. 
When I say bologna, I'm talking about the meat. Tortellini, Parmigiano Reggiano, Parma ham, balsamic vinegar, they all come from this region of Italy. As for bologna, its origins come from one of the region's most famous products, mortadella. Like American bologna, it's this pink deli meat, typically thinly sliced, but unlike American bologna, which usually uses a combination of pork, beef, and chicken, mortadella is made with 100% pork meat. It also has these marbled white dots running throughout pure pork fat. Not exactly a diet food, but it's delicious. I have loved mortadella ever since I discovered it, maybe six or seven years ago. It has this totally different reputation that goes all the way back to the 1200s. Mortadella is a sacred delicacy here. Today, the recipe is maintained by a society of mortadella makers who meet several times a year in Bologna's historic center. These winding, compact streets tucked with some of the city's best tortellini and parmesan makers, fruit and veggie vendors, and of course, mortadella vendors. I went and met with one of them. Davide Davide Simoni is in his late 30s. He's the youngest member of this mortadella society, which has been in existence since the 1800s. His family has been making mortadella for decades. They have two salumerias in the city center and a restaurant where I am now. It's called Simoni Laboratorio. It's a big space with lots of dark wood, a huge deli counter, and all these old photos on the walls. Some included notable people. This guy is Buffalo Bill. Buffalo Bill? Buffalo Bill in Bologna. This is the first thing Davide can't wait to show me when I walk in. And he promises me this is 100% authentic. It's this photo of traveling showman Buffalo Bill a la the Wild Wild West tour, taken in Bologna in 1906. Buffalo Bill had expanded the tour to Europe at this point. In the photo, he's standing in front of this tent that's got a buffalo's head mounted on top. And he's next to these two men. Davide tells me they're two brothers. And Buffalo Bill uh, was called by these two guys, the Zapoli brothers, to promote Mortadella, their Mortadella. During his show, Buffalo Bill would promote the mortadella made by these brothers. He would invite people over to his tent and say, hey, come have a tasting. Okay, hang on now. You are not telling me, Rebecca, that Buffalo Bill is the guy who brought mortadella to the United States? <laughs> no, no, that's not what I'm saying. It, you know, at least <laughs> not as far as the historians I've consulted know. That would be a good story, though. We'll get to more about that history later, you know, how mortadella came to the U.S. But first, I wanted to learn a couple of things from Davide about mortadella, starting with its origin story, which goes all the way back to 13th century Italy. In this street, just a few meters from here, you add, since 1242, the house of people producing mortadella in Latin Mortare means cut really finely. So in English, it's quite the same, the mortar, you know? There wasn't any official recipe, but the idea was this was a salumi made with pork and cured with lots of salt and spiced with myrtle berries. They've got a peppery taste, and they're pretty distinct to the Mediterranean region, which includes the island of Sardinia. Right. A very similar flavor to juniper. 
But it wasn't until 1661 that an official recipe for mortadella came out. And this is when things started to get really serious. The government writes up this decree saying anyone who tries to pass their product off as mortadella without sticking to the official recipe will be punished. And I mean punished. If you make fake factory of mortadella, you're going to pay 200 golden money and you're going to be hanged three times with the rope and uh, all your goods will be destroyed. Well, that is intense. Yeah. From the very beginning, mortadella was regarded as this high-quality product. We don't throw nothing, never. Nothing goes to waste. Yes. And uh, the white and the pink are mixed. Pink being finely ground cuts of pork, and the white being pieces of pure pork fat. And then we put salt, pepper, and spices, coriander. Actually, we use a little of uh, rosemary, a little of fennel, but little. Mostly it's coriander that gives a balsamic taste. The recipe today has changed a bit. In fact, Davide tells me he regularly makes some small tweaks based on current consumer tastes. But the basics have remained the same. He's not going to get hanged for deviating a little bit from that original recipe. Davide took me through this long scientific explanation about how finely you have to grind the meat and spices. He showed me this very expensive machine he uses to grind the pork. And he also told me about the temperatures you have to cook everything at to get a perfect emulsification. This is a product that takes days to make, and you really need to know what you're doing to get everything right. There's a very specific chemistry to making mortadella, and it involves knowing the right measurements, temperatures, and also just having a lot of patience. To get that final color and texture, you also have to make sure you chop the meat really finely. And Davide actually uses a special machine worth thousands of euros to get the specific finely ground texture mortadella needs. And if you want to cut it finely, that it comes to be like a strawberry ice cream. Strawberry ice cream is actually a good way to put it. You have a color very similar to American bologna, maybe a little bit lighter, and then these delicious pieces of pork fat marbled throughout each slice. I had a couple of slices at Davide's Sulumaria. Okay, so I'm trying this. You know, it's for the radio. It's really warm. You can see the heat coming out. Oh, wow. (laughs) But mortadella makers in Bologna had their own quality control crisis many years ago. As production lines got bigger during the 20th century, the quality went down. And as factories got bigger, it became harder to ensure quality control. In 1998, a special consortium was created to keep standards up. That's the year mortadella was given this official status, IGP. EGP means Indicazione Geografica Protetta. It's a special protected status for a number of products that are tied to a specific region, like Balsamico di Modena or Provolone Valpadana. Exactly. How did it taste? Oh, so good. It has this amazing meaty flavor that's just cooked to perfection. I loved the way it's sliced, super thin paper-like slices, And those specks of pure pork fat throughout make the meat so much more decadent. Did you even bring up the subject of American bologna with Davide? Yeah, he's actually tried it. 
It was so bad, so acid. What kind of surprised me, though, is that he says he thinks a lot of that bad taste, the acidity, comes from the temperature you cook the meat at and not necessarily the quality of the ingredients. If you don't work with the correct temperature and then you add something that is salt or engines, chemical engines, you know, they get this acid even more, uh, you know, comes out. So the thing that it makes, it makes you burps for one hour, two hours, three hours later, you have this taste. And it's because your stomach finds a very acid thing. So... What he's saying is that if you don't get those exact temperatures right, you're likely to produce something that comes off as just way too acidic. Our taste buds perceive certain tastes more intensely when eating foods cooked at a higher cooking temperature. Mortadella is cooked at a lower temperature than American bologna. Because of the higher cooking temperature of American bologna, we take in more of that acidity, which, like Davide says, you know, tends to make people burp or requires a Tums tablet or two to properly digest. So does he feel like the U.S. has no business going around selling a product that's named bologna and that in many ways is modeled after mortadella? <laughs> you know, he gave me a great answer about that. In the U.S., for sure, bologna means something that it's trashy, it's something that it's uh, not so good. So this thing tells you a unique story. It's like if in 300 years, the champagne was something people wash uh, the floor with champagne or truffle, you know, something that was the most important product come to the low level. Meaning when bologna arrived in the US, all quality control just kind of went out the window. The standards fell. So you have the champagne of bolognese becoming the phony of bolognese. We'll find out more about how that happened and whether or not this low-level reputation might just be changing. All that after the break. The family farmers at Pete and Jerry's Organics are passionate about raising happy, healthy hens that produce the best eggs. Here's Pete and Jerry's farmer, Judith Klein of Rockingham County, Virginia. We've got scores of hens just outside, just pecking at any little bugs that they can find. And, and my son loves them. Like, he'll go out and walk up to me like, Mom, I want to hold one. Your son's little hands are touching eggs that are going into cartons that are going across the country. There's got to be something that just feels so, so wonderful about it. It is very rewarding. Just overall, taking care of the earth and taking care of our animals. We've got these bright orange yolks. And that just is such a testimony to how much access they have to going outdoors. Speaking of quality eggs, I know you have a family recipe for a blueberry cobbler that calls for using really good eggs. So it's called Mama's Blueberry Cobbler. Think back to something that just brings back the best memories. And this is exactly the feeling I get when I take a bite of this cobbler. Just gives this little crisp bite to the top of it. It feels like love, honestly. Find Judith's family recipe and more about her family farm at PeteAndJerry's.com. That's Pete and G-E-R-R-Y-S dot com. 
The founder of OXO, Sam Farber's idea for OXO's iconic non-slip grip peeler was born out of love for his wife, Betsy. Betsy's arthritis made using old-fashioned metal peelers a real struggle, so Sam and Betsy designed a better handle together. And that love still inspires OXO designs today. Karen Schnellwar heads up brand and marketing at OXO. It's the love that we pour into making the products, observing people living their everyday lives. It inspires problems we could solve, needs we could anticipate. OXO kitchen tools made with love. Shop all products at OXO.com. That's OXO.com. OXO. Better. Guaranteed. Hi, Proof listeners. It's Bridget here. Now, did you ever find that ripe, juicy mango is slipping and sliding all over your cutting board when you're trying to cut into it? Or maybe the mango's just a little too firm. Well, today, my America's Test Kitchen colleague and friend, El Simone Scott, comes to the rescue, and she's going to share some amazing prepping tips with me. Hey there, Elle. Hey, Bridget. How you doing? I am doing great, but I'd be better if I didn't have to deal with slippery mangoes. I know. So first, you're going to cut a thin slice from the end of the mango so that it sits flat on the counter. That's a good safety tip anytime you're dealing with wobbly food, right? Absolutely. And just to be safe, we're going to hold down the mango firmly if it isn't as ripe. Got it. So next, you're going to rest the mango on the trimmed end and cut off the skin in thin strips from top to bottom. Then you're going to cut down along each side of the flat pit to remove the flesh. And then you can cut the flesh as you desire. All right. Well, easy does it. And thanks, Elle. Go to mango.org slash proof for more tantalizing mango recipes and to learn more about mangoes. Okay, so let's explore a little bit more of the backstory behind bologna in the U.S. and how its fate departed from its cousin, mortadella. Now, the truth is, we don't really know how mortadella made it from Italy to the United States, but we do know that at some point, mortadella made its way to Germany. And American bologna most resembles the German variation of mortadella. German immigrants are the ones who introduce bologna to the United States. This is Sarah Wasberg-Johnson. She's a U.S. food historian based in New York. She says what we do know is that German immigrants started bringing their own version of bologna to the United States in the mid-1800s. German mortadella is known for having more of a garlicky flavor than its Italian predecessor. It's really popularized by German immigrants throughout the upper Midwest, uh, Wisconsin, Chicago. There's varieties of it in um, Pennsylvania, obviously, Appalachia, like Tennessee area. Different regions do bologna differently. In Tennessee, you have fried bologna. And in Pennsylvania and parts of the Midwest, you have ring bologna. It's a really big thing. But overall, all these American bolognese are less fatty and more emulsified than mortadella. Mortadella is famous for those specks of pure pork fat throughout. And American bologna doesn't have to be pure pork. In fact, it's often a blend of different kinds of meats, including offcuts. Yeah, and that's a really important kind of ironic point, Bridget. Bologna has this stigma today for exactly what you just described, being this kind of gross mystery meat made of some of the disgusting unused animal parts and connective tissue. But back in the early 20th century, 
bologna became incredibly popular because it underwent extreme sanitary controls and was seen as a safe meat to eat. Ah, bologna and its champagne days. At the time, the United States was really concerned about the purity of food. You know, Upton Sinclair's The Jungle is coming out around this time. People are really freaked out. Americans were just appalled at the fact that the cleanliness or lack thereof of these places. These places being the slaughterhouse factories, as described in Upton Sinclair's book. The funny story about The Jungle is Upton Sinclair said, I aimed for America's hearts and hit their stomachs. Because, of course, he was trying to bring light to the plight of the workers in the slaughterhouses and meat factories. The jungle inspired some real change. In 1906, the U.S. passed the Pure Food and Drug Act. It was kind of a precursor to the Food and Drug Administration. It banned the sale of any dangerous or falsely labeled food and drugs. And there was this one relatively small butcher based in Chicago who really understood the public's desire to know that the food on their plates met all these sanitary inspections. Oscar Meyer, who in 1906 volunteered to have his tiny butcher shop inspected as part of a federal meat inspection program. We admire waiters. Oscar Meyer waiters. They are so plump and tender too. It's Oscar Meyer for me and you. So I think Oscar Mayer kind of hopping on that sanitation and food purity and safety bandwagon probably gave him a little bit of a head start over maybe some of his competitors, even though he was quite a small butcher shop when they started doing that. From there, Oscar Mayer's business really started to grow. In 1919, just after World War I, he bought a processing plant. It was a big step up from his tiny butcher shop in Madison, Wisconsin. But it wasn't until the 1930s that Oscar Mayer's bologna really took off. During the Great Depression, definitely I think bologna became popular because it was so inexpensive. Um, A lot of meat products that were inexpensive became very popular for that reason, like ground beef. Like a lot of quintessential kind of like American home cooking foods use ground beef in large part because it was widely available and inexpensive. It's cheap. It's an easy lunch. You just plop a couple of slices in between two pieces of white bread and add a little mustard. I gotta say it's pretty tasty. Okay, well, tasty maybe by your definition, Bridget, but remember that's still subjective. (laughs) But I have to admit, I did start to have my own doubts while working on this story. Though I, I don't know, I still just think of this sort of meat paste or batter when I think of Oscar Mayer bologna. It's just so finely emulsified. You know, that texture alone is still very off-putting to me. Well, did you ask Sarah about her own personal bologna thoughts? Yes. I don't remember us eating that much bologna. I mean, definitely I was not biased against processed food because my favorite sandwich growing up was Velveeta and Miracle Whip. And then you put it in the microwave to melt the, the cheese. That's an interesting combination because if you think about how we think of these foods today, bologna, Velveeta, Miracle Whip, they're all looked at as kind of imitators of other foods. And it makes me wonder, at some point, I know that people started to read food labels. We were curious about what was going into the foods that we eat. And I wonder if that has anything to do with the timing of when Oscar Mayer bologna started to fall out of favor. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. Sarah also noted... 
think for a lot of people, it also is very much associated in many instances with poverty because these foods, you know, refined white bread, American cheese, bologna, mayonnaise, they're all very cheap, relatively high calorie foods. You know, bologna is the staple of the prison industrial complex. For a long time, it was served to school children. So I think it has these sort of negative connotations with industrial food and kind of like cold, sterile, not particularly good for you, but really cheap food. And that obviously created a stigma. I think there's a similar stigma, although to a lesser extent, against hot dogs. I think hot dogs have a slightly better reputation because they're so closely associated with kind of all American events, like baseball games and county fairs and stuff like that. But while Oscar Mayer might be the largest bologna producer in the United States, it's not the only one. And Rebecca, I heard that you found some people who are trying to give uh, bologna a little redemption story, if you will, here in the United States. I did, indeed. I went on a search to see if I could find some of these people, butchers, chefs, and restaurant owners, reclaiming bologna's reputation, making their own bologna and sort of, you know, spreading the gospel of this meat, starting in the Midwest. It was probably one of my more you know, more enjoyable memories in terms of deli sandwiches from when I was a kid. This is Chris Ellie. He's the owner of Smoking Goose in Indianapolis. We started with a neighborhood butcher shop in 2007. So that's kind of where we laid our roots in Indianapolis. My wife, Molly, and I opened the store there. She was a middle school counselor at the time. And, you know, we just uh, essentially kind of wanted to bring a neighborhood butcher back to an urban area of Indianapolis as it was kind of redeveloping. Today, their business has really expanded and their primary focus is wholesale. Smoking Goose caught my eye because they make this Wagyu beef bologna, which just sounds so fancy. In the States, you know, it's like kind of over emulsified and there's not really a whole lot of texture to it. And I do actually like that version of it as well. But I wanted to make a version that, you know, showed a lot of texture and showed like this mosaic pattern that you would get in something that had a little bit more texture to it. We cold smoke it for about 10 hours before we hot smoke it to a finished lethality. And so that's, you know, the color, the deep smoke color, and, you know, no artificial ingredients, no preservatives, very clean label. Um, so everything we do is very slow, uh, very, you know, more traditional style of the production side of it. Then I also talked to these guys, Ray and Steve, who own this bar and restaurant called Stash International in Detroit. Here's Ray Moses. My first real experience with fried bologna was my grandpa. He loved to make fried bologna sandwiches any time of the day. Breakfast, lunch, dinner, middle of the night. They make this homemade beef bologna sandwich that comes on Texas toast and is topped with Carolina mustard, caramelized onions, bacon, and American cheese. Steve Kay is the mastermind behind their beef bologna recipe. We do a cure, just a, basically a salt and water cure for at least 24 hours, 24 to 48 hours. And then that just sits and cures basically a, overnight in the salt and water. Then the spices, basically just spice it. And to get the consistency, that's where I guess the, the work comes in is, is going through a food processor because you want to get it to kind of a meat paste, basically, before we stuff it into the casing. 
Then they let it smoke for six to nine hours before it's cooled, sliced, and served. They say it's one of, if not the most popular item on their menu. It's a bologna sandwich meets a patty melt, and that kind of turns people's ears a little bit. It's such a classic flavor that people crave. It's the same way, you know, when I was talking about my grandpa with the fried bologna, it's it's just something that sticks with you. It's one of those things where you're like, that's it. I remember that. It kind of takes you back. Ray brings up a really important point that I don't think we've discussed yet. It's the nostalgia factor of bologna. I mean, when I think about bologna, at least for me, a big part of why I love it so much is that it takes me right back to my childhood where, again, I was eating those bologna sandwiches in elementary school. Times were simpler then. But I also think of the fried bologna sandwiches that my mom would make, that hot bologna coming out of the skillet, hitting a piece of white bread, maybe a little cheese since the bologna was hot. It's just so good. You're right. And thank you, because that's actually an excellent segue to the last person I want to introduce you to. Someone who's created an entire menu lineup based on nostalgia. My name is Mason Hereford. I'm 34. I'm a New Orleanian cook who owns a couple restaurants. One's called Turkey and the Wolf, and the other is called Molly's Rise and Shine. I don't think Mason Hereford would disagree with me when I say both his restaurants attract a lot of millennial hipsters. But for good reason. We like to use some of those ingredients from our childhood that might be overlooked in your professional kitchen from time to time. You know, I've had some of our dishes compared to after-school snacks. Basically, it's all based around fun, and obviously we're trying to make something that tastes good and makes you feel good when you eat it. Yeah, looking at the menu of Turkey and the Wolf, I could definitely see that influence. There's chicken pot hand pie and Zapp's potato chips, collard green melts. That sounds so good. And of course, there's that signature fried bologna sandwich. For some reason, at a young age, I didn't like really want bologna and yellow mustard on like untoasted white bread. So we would like layer it with chips to like choke it down. And, um, you know, later on, we came across a bologna that we really liked made by a friend of mine here in New Orleans. And, you know, we got a recipe for a really good mustard from uh, a friend's mom. We have a bakery that we really like who makes the bread. And you kind of put it all together with the best version of the ingredients and turned out to be like something we really wanted to eat. You get three pieces of bologna that are, you know, cut to what we consider the ideal thickness or whatever. Uh, Two pieces of like really thick cut white bread that we toast, we put butter and we toast in a pan on both sides. Then we use Duke's mayonnaise. We're pretty brand specific with our mayonnaise choices. We use a mustard that's really sweet and really spicy. Then we have shredded iceberg lettuce, which we refer to as shreddus, and we like to think we invented that term. We have bologna and American cheese. And then in the middle, there's a big handful of chips. And for the chips, we uh, brine them in vinegar for a day or two before we fry them. So they're like sort of in between a regular chip and a salt and vinegar chip. So if the hipsters are going for it, does that mean that bologna is cool now? And I should expect to see people wearing, I don't know, bologna t-shirts or bologna beanies, maybe walking around with bologna tattoos. Do you think that this is something that we're going to start finding on menus everywhere? Well, I asked Mason about that. It's not like bologna's everywhere, but it's not like impossible to find it because so many uh, young chefs have turned to nostalgia ingredients or 
you know, like to mess around with like playful stuff. And, you know, the balloon, flabby bologna you have in your kid is definitely like a playful ingredient to dress up and make fun again. So Mason is actually the co-owner of another sandwich shop in Chicago called Big Kids that serves the same bologna sandwich. And because I'm from Chicago, I sent my friends Aaron and Daniel to do a taste test. They're brothers. Here's Daniel. We grew up in like a kosher vegetarian household that pretty much shuns all like preserved products. So I don't think I really knew what bologna was until I was probably 13. And then when I found out, I think I just went crazy. <laughs> so when I found bologna, I was like, oh my God, I still don't really know what's inside it. I have no idea. <laughs> I honestly don't know if I've ever had bologna before. I did go through um, like a dried meat phase for a while. The perfect bologna experts, right? <laughs> so I had them order the sandwich to go. They open it up in their car. It's crunchy. There's a lot of crunch to it. The bread is toasted slash fried. <laughs> there is um, chips inside, which are also crunchy. And there's this kind of mayonnaise sauce, I think, which is pretty good. It goes well with the bologna. There's like a lot happening. <laughs> There's a lot happening in the sandwich. So the bologna's in there, but it's more of um, it's more of just like a side thing. I do feel like a kid. I really do. I think the hipsters will turn anything into a revolution. <laughs> and I think definitely there's a different kind of nostalgia for mid-century culture. But I think for sure there's there's people who kind of want to take these quintessentially American food ways that are so industrial, so highly processed, and kind of flip them on their head a little bit and kind of bring them back to their original craft origins, if you will. What well, sure does sound like bologna's comeback is definitely in large thanks to those nostalgic hipsters. But it's not just artisan bologna in demand. I remember reading that in 2020, there was a run on supermarket brands, including some of the brands from my childhood, like Armor and Cons. Anyone who grew up in Appalachia will know exactly what I'm talking about here. But as for the hipsters, do you think that they're changing bologna's image, which we discussed earlier as this kind of phony mystery meat? Well, I do think there is something to be said when it comes to branding. You know, I admit when I hear words like craft or artisan or you know, homemade, my taste buds get way more excited as opposed to say words like factory produced or mechanically separated meat. But I think, you know, now is also a time for me to confess that going to Bologna, Italy and learning more about how mortadella is made, then learning about how American bologna is made, the process is actually a lot more similar than I had initially thought. I think we can safely say the quality of the ingredients in mortadella is superior to Oscar Mayer bologna. But a lot of the things that grossed me out about Oscar Mayer when I was a kid, particularly the fact that it was a mystery meat filled with all those extra parts, that's kind of the same story for mortadella. Mortadella is pure pork, but they don't shy away from using parts of the pig that, as a kid, would have grossed me out. And that quote-unquote pink slime texture of Oscar Mayer, that's very similar to the texture you're looking for with mortadella. Though mortadella is sliced much thinner, and those extra pieces of pork fat really make it melt in your mouth. But back to the hipsters. 
That word nostalgia is really important here. And to answer your question, Bridget, I want to take us back to Italy, back to Davide Simone's restaurant in Bologna. Remember, I asked him what he thought of American bologna, and he said he didn't like it. But he also acknowledged that he doesn't necessarily have the license to trash it. I tried one and I didn't like it. But I don't know, maybe there is someone that likes, and so I cannot say that bologna is a trash. Okay, that is a pretty generous statement coming from someone who could so easily trash our bologna. Bologna that dares to take its namesake from his city and claim to be a cousin of his beloved mortadella. (laughs) Isn't it? He's a very generous man. And, you know, for all their differences, there's one commonality between mortadella and bologna that really stuck out to me. The nostalgia factor. This is what Davide said when I asked him what he loves most about mortadella. When you go to an Italian and you say, what do you think of a panino with mortadella? Mostly they say, ooh, wow, I want, we like it. It's something that brings you back to your good memory at school when you had the breakfast in the morning or uh, at home, your grandmother making a panino and mortadella, or when you go in the shop and say, give me a panino and mortadella, it's always something positive. Both bologna and mortadella are comfort foods attached to childhood memories. I can get behind that. I still feel like we need to do a taste test comparison here, though, between mortadella and bologna. You think you'd be up for shipping me some mortadella? Uh, alas, I cannot. But I do have a little anecdote for you from someone you know who has done this sort of cross-comparison. Paul Adams, the science editor at America's Test Kitchen. You know, from the 1960s to the year 2000, it was actually illegal to ship mortadella to the United States. That was because of a swine flu outbreak in Italy. But Paul, who grew up in Manhattan in the 80s and 90s, has this Italian-American friend. And somewhere, I guess his family went to Italy And they brought back illegal mortadella. And this friend, a guy named John, was really excited to share this mortadella. A group of us met him in Central Park. And we sat in the sheep meadow and opened up the wax paper. And there was this glistening pink pile of sliced special meat and we each took a piece. And I remember after all the hype from John, it just kind of tasted like the bologna that I remembered from the supermarket. And hey, remember, like I said, taste is subjective. But for me, I think what's most interesting here when we're talking about bologna versus mortadella is the objective. That is, the fact that both meats have such strong ties to nostalgia and childhood memories. So, ingredients, cooking processes, and even taste aside, you know, I think nostalgia is exactly what people are looking for. Thanks to Rebecca Rossman for bringing us this story. If you like Proof, then be sure to subscribe wherever you listen so you'll get new episodes as soon as they drop. And while you're there, hey, why not leave us a rating or write us a review? 
It really helps other people find the show. Proof is hosted and produced by me, Bridget Lancaster. Our executive producer is Caitlin Kelleher. Yumi Araki is our senior producer. Caroline Ricker is our producer. Terrence Johnson is our associate producer. Scoring, sound design, and mixing by Matt Boynton and Anya Jeshik of Ultraviolet Audio. Brian Campbell of Signal Sounds composed our theme music. Additional music by Kyle Forrester and Jordan Pearson. Post-production supervisor is Hen Margolis. Our line producer is Diane Knox. Fact-checking and additional research by Angela Yang. Jack Bishop is no phony baloney and chief creative officer of America's Test Kitchen. David Nussbaum is our CEO. Thanks again to our sponsors, Pete and Jerry's, Acorn TV, OXO, The Mango Board, Edible, and Sitka Salmon Shares. Proof is a production of America's Test Kitchen. <laughs>